inspiration. You were there to help me out. You just saw the need and said, can I help you? We learn a lot from watching other horses and watching other riders. Hello, everyone. I'm Julie Goodnight, and thank you for listening to my podcast about horse training and equestrian sports. Be sure to hit subscribe so you won't miss a single episode. You can find us everywhere you get your podcasts. I appreciate the reviews and ratings from our listeners. I've been getting some great feedback, both online and in person. I love seeing those five-star reviews. It helps me out a lot, and it helps other horse lovers find this podcast. So my heartfelt thanks to everyone who's left me a review. I do really enjoy reading your comments. I think you'll hear some of your questions in our Q&A segment today. So please, keep them coming. Since the last time we recorded this podcast... I've been mostly at home, except I spent a week up in Fort Collins, Colorado, at the university there, Colorado State University. I am affiliated with the equine program there, which is quite substantial and world-renowned. And I had the opportunity to work with the colt training class. There, were, there are 29 colts and 29 students, student trainers, and the colts are there for two semesters. They start out as untrained yearlings and two-year-olds in in the fall. And the second semester, they wind up at the Legends of Ranching Sale, which is conducted there at the university in support of the student program there. And so these colts were just, just, you know, partway through their first semester. So they were yearlings and two-year-olds. When I go back up there in the spring, they will be two- and three-year-olds that are being ridden, started under saddle, getting their basics. By the time the sale comes around in April, they should all be, you know, well started under saddle, working at a walk, trot, and canter both directions, and and, uh, plus hopefully some skills beyond that. So I enjoyed working with them. I've bought numerous horses from the Legends of Ranching Sale uh, including pepperoni, and also including my mare Annie and and Eddie, the horse, uh, the good ranch gelding that uh, we had. So I've clearly enjoyed being part of that program. Here at the ranch in the high mountains of Colorado, we've been getting lots of snow. It's not even technically winter yet, but we have had feet and feet of snow plus sub-zero temperatures. So winter is well underway here, and it looks like it's going to be a long one. And although that makes horses and horse care and horseback riding challenging in the winter, it's great for skiing, which is the reason why we live here in the high mountains. So Rich has been skiing almost every day. I've been skiing as much as I can I've only skied twice, and both of them have been powder days this year, so getting pretty spoiled there. Finally, I'm getting back to riding my young horse, Pepper. He's been off for two, three months with a series of injuries, some self-inflicted, some training-inflicted, unfortunately, but he is 
doing better, back to riding, and we're picking right up where we left off. Like he hasn't missed a lick other than he's a little bit out of shape from being stall bound for a couple of months. So now that I'm spending more time at home, generally in late November and December, I spend all this time off the road, so to speak, with no business travel. So that's one of my periods where I hopefully get to get a lot of riding in on my horses. So, so far, so good on that. Looking forward to the holidays and this time at home. Next year, 2020, I've got lots of great great events coming up including horse expos in Tennessee, Pennsylvania, Oregon, and Wisconsin. And that's just in the spring. I'm also introducing two new programs at the Sea Lazy U Ranch in Granby, Colorado. One is a couples riding retreat, and I'm co-teaching that with Barbara Schulte. Actually, my husband, Rich, and I are co-teaching the Couples Riding Retreat with Barbara Schulte and her husband, Tom Schulte. And so we're really excited about that. It's going to be a super fun program, uh, very vacation and relaxation oriented uh, with lots of fun riding and clinicking on the side. Also, up at Sea Lazy U, I'm introducing a brand new program. I've been asked about this again and again and again for years and years and years. And I'm calling it Horsemanship Immersion. And this is going to be a five-day, five-day, four-night program of simply immersing yourself in horses, horse care, horse training, groundwork, and including horsemanship and riding skills. So it's a concentrated program of learning for people that, at all levels, really, uh, see Lazy U's very uh, adept at handling the beginner rider, but it's for the serious student of horsemanship, so you might you can check out either of those programs from my website. Also going back to Ireland in 2020 with the Connemara Equestrian Escapes. I'm really excited about that. So I hope you'll join me on that great riding tour in September. You can find out more details on all of these programs in 2020 on my website. And just click on the schedule at juliegoodnight.com. Today's topic, how can I help my horse like his job. Wouldn't that be great if all horses loved doing the work they had to do? Wouldn't it be great if all people loved the work they had to do? We'll talk about having reasonable expectations of your horse. We'll talk a little bit about considering the horse's point of view in that which you are training him. Also providing the physical and emotional support your horse needs and how to avoid training burnout and plateaus in your trainings. In other words, how do I keep my horse moving forward in his training and progressing and still staying fresh and enjoying his job? How can I help my horse enjoy his job? That's a great question. And my first response is to say, is this even realistic? Look, let's face it, the riding horse has a hard job. 
a lot of horses have hard jobs carrying people around, dragging people around in carts, whatever they do, um, endurance racing, mounted shooting, jumping. These are hard jobs for the horse. I don't like to get too anthropomorphic in thinking about training horses. However, a lot of humans have hard jobs. They work really hard for generally, hopefully, a good living and great benefits. And so I like to consider in my training of a horse that he is going to work hard. Sometimes I'm going to make some strong demands on my horse, both physically and mentally, and also performance-wise. So I also need to think a lot and constantly about the paycheck that he gets in that endeavor. Uh, Certainly his physical needs are paramount, um, most critical, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. His emotional well-being is just as important, just as your emotional well-being in a high-level sport or any serious endeavor you undertake. It's important that you have a clear and focused mind, confidence, all of that. These things are important to your horse, too. But when I think about how realistic it is, people, I've had a lot of people lately ask me, you know, how do I, my horse seems very unhappy, he seems grumpy, he's, you know, pinning his ears every time we trot, he, or he's resistant at first, but then he kind of does better, or, you know, there's all kinds of different ways that people ask this question. The bottom line is, how do I make my horse happy in his job, or, you know, how do I address my horse's unhappiness, <laughs> or displeasure, or grumpiness, or, you know, sometimes that, Uh, results in disobedience even. So recently I was working with a group of horses that were a part of a retraining and repurposing of horses that came out of rescues. And And all of these horses were being repurposed as riding horses. So they, these horses had already been vetted for soundness and soundness of body and soundness of mind and and they were hopefully going to be great candidates to just simply have some training a good solid foundational training and then be adopted into happy forever homes and one of the horses was a big black mare this mare i mean and this Mare was really big. She was well over 17 hands. She was a warm blood of some sort, presumably registered, um, I believe imported. And she was, I believe, 11 years old. And first of all, right there, big red flag, 11 years old and never been started under saddle that uh, never really gone through a training program, developed a a work ethic under saddle, uh, that's probably already setting you up for a difficult road. Secondly, and, and most tragically, I would say, this mare had been bred presumably numerous times. And she was a big, beautiful, athletic, warm blooded mare. And they had just simply started breeding her at a young age without training her first, without developing her 
physically, for the sport of riding, uh, for the sport that had her, without training her and seeing if she was fit physically and mentally for the sport for which her babies would be um, destined to. Instead, she just went right into becoming a broodmare and probably, I'm going to guess, between the age of, let's say, four and uh, nine or ten when she ended up in rescue, she probably had, let's say, three babies. With no conditioning between babies, she you know, could have potentially been bred every year or a year in between with no conditioning because she wasn't trained under saddle. So physically, this mare was a mess. She ended up in rescue after malnutrition, so that right there was a big problem. Uh, but they had spent considerable time and resources in putting weight back on this mare. However, having three babies in a short amount of time without ever having been conditioned to begin with or in between the babies does terrible things to your body. Terrible. Just ask any woman you know that's had babies. And this mare physically was in miserable shape, even though they'd done a lot and brought her a long way. She was a very sweet, kind, obedient horse, but the trainers were concerned that she seemed unhappy. And that was indeed the question, how do I make her happy in her job? <laughs> and and I, sorry for laughing, but to me, to expect this 11-year-old broodmare who's physically not in shape to be doing anything athletic and has no top line at all, even though, yes, it looks way better than it was, um, to expect her to be happy and enjoy somebody getting up on her back and carrying them around and going into a whole new career after she's already retired from one career is perhaps a bit unrealistic. And that was my answer. So let's focus on getting this horse healthy and fit before we think about riding her. She's, she's not going to be hard to saddle. She's, she's accepting the saddle. She's accepting the bridle. She's accepting the rider just fine. Let's go ahead and spend um, another semester or two getting this horse fat and fit and then we'll worry about making her happy in the job of being a riding horse. So make sure you have some reasonable expectations of your horse. And, and related to that is to think about the horse's point of view in your training program. Let's say you're an endurance racer and that horse has got to be fit to, to run 100 miles in whatever they do that in, I don't know, eight hours or something. That's an incredible amount of fitness. That means you know, almost every day that horse is going out on long, long trots and you know lots of endurance training. So that's a hard job. We have to understand that that's a hard job. What does my horse get in return for that? How can I get, how can I pay him back for that? And um, so consider your horse's point of view. If you're training, let's say, a new sport. And you as the rider are new to that sport. And so you're having to do a lot of exercises over and over and over and over again to, let's say it's jumping and you're, you know, you got to work over cavalettes over and over. You got to learn that two point, learn that release, uh, learn the timing, learn the distance. There's a lot of learning 
in parentheses, mistakes being made. So, you know, you we've got to be able to rely on our horse for these things, but to expect them to be happy about all that is is maybe a little bit unrealistic. But also, we have to be aware of and take care of his needs in that program. Let's say I am learning to jump, and you, everyone learning to jump, even people already know how to jump, make mistakes occasionally that result in the horse getting hit in the mouth or slammed down on their back or bad timing and he hits the jump and has a you know crash. These things are, are just as hard on the horse as they are on you. And, you know, we want to be, yeah, let's get back at it. Let's go, 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 go. But sometimes we need to recognize that was hard on the horse too. What can we do to make it up to him? Let's give him a little bit of a break. Let's pause here and think about this. Um, acknowledge your mistake to the horse and thank him for accepting uh, your mistakes as a rider. So consider the horse's point of view when you can. It's really important, and I mentioned in the introduction, that the physical needs of the horse are most important. And if we think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs and how we reach that, you know, pinnacle state of the pyramid where everything is the best, the tip of the pyramid, the foundational layer is physical needs. And I think that most people that are listening to this podcast are pretty serious about their horsemanship and they're already providing good nutrition to their horse. Hopefully they're also providing a great lifestyle for their horse. By the way, in my interactive online coaching program, we really get in and analyze all these aspects of your horse's life and, you know, what he's being fed, what his uh, accommodations are, his turnout, his training schedule, his health maintenance, all those things. We kind of evaluate uh, where that horse is and what, what his needs are and what we can do better. For the most part, I think most of you are doing your best to take care of your horse's physical needs, but I want you to consider the physical needs in your training program because people don't often see when they're up on the horse's back how physically hard riding is on the horse. And I think it's important that you constantly assess saddle fit, that you always are looking your horse over from the tip of the nose to the tip of the tail to the tip of the toes every single day. You're, you're looking at the sweat patterns of your saddle. You're at least quarterly reassessing saddle fit. You're considering the bridle, the bit, all of these things. You're, if, if the horse is is having difficulty with a certain aspect of his performance, particularly when it's something he didn't have difficulty with before. That's an immediate red flag that something physical is going on. You know, horses that are in high-level equestrian sports, whether that be jumping, barrel racing, cutting, roping, you name it, endurance racing, anything that's, you know, hard, physically hard, 
those horses are probably going to be experiencing joint problems. And as much as I like to remind riders that if you're doing some kind of riding sport and at the end of the day you're tired and sore from that, almost certainly your horse is too. So consider, again, the horse's point of view. Consider the physical needs. Um, be the, the more demanding I am of a horse physically in terms of sport, athletic, competition, whatever, the more I plan on spending in vet bills and health maintenance. I, if I have, I, I've learned the hard way over the decades of riding and training horses that when something is a little bit off in that horse's training, especially when it's it's a change. In other words, a horse used to be doing that just fine, and now he's not. Immediate red flag. Immediately, I want to get a lameness evaluation of that horse. Find that source of 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 soreness because here's the great news: we have so many advanced modalities of treatment for joint issues with horses, back issues, uh, SI joint, you name it, chiropractic. There, there are so many great treatments for horses that will keep them physically healthy and therefore way happier in their job. So the first thing I want to look at with grumpiness or, or crankiness or unhappiness or a plateau or decrease in a horse's performance is the physical. And sometimes that's the easiest thing to fix too, So and fastest. So consider that. But just as much as the physical matters, also the emotional needs of your horse matters. And I think a lot of when people say, is my horse happy in his job? A lot of that does have to do with the horse's emotional need. And all the time in clinics, and I I would venture to say every clinic that I do, every large clinic that I do with, you know, let's say 15 or 20 horses or more, there will be horses that are pitting their ears all the time in the groundwork, being ridden, when they get asked to do something, when they don't want to do something, or when the rider makes a mistake. And for the most part, the riders usually are oblivious to that, going on busy with their riding agenda. But um, horses pretty much feel the same emotions humans do. We probably way overcomplicate our emotions and overthink them a lot more. Horses tend to be honest and upfront in their emotions. But, you know, they feel fear. They feel anger. They feel frustration. They feel jealousy. Horses, uh, and they feel resentment. Um, They, you know, when a horse, horses are, are very good at understanding and following rules but if they get criticized when they're not breaking a rule, in other words, if they get you know criticized or punished in some way when they know they're doing something right, in other words, you miscued them and they gave the answer to the cue you gave instead of the answer to the cue you thought you gave, they you know they aren't happy about that and they don't want to take the blame for that and they take it, but they pin their ears or they you know grind their teeth or clench their jaw in frustration. So these things, when gone unnoticed and unaddressed by the rider, build in a horse. And I see horses all the time that have built built resentment 
over being miscued, being overcued, being um, not a good leader, demanding at times, indulgent at other times, saying, uh, no, you can't do that. Yes, you can. No, you can't. Yes, you can. Um, I see people in groundwork all the time, asking the horse to go, then slamming the horse to a stop, asking him to go, slamming him to a stop, asking him to go, slamming him. You know, uh, how long is this horse supposed to take that before he starts getting angry or resentful about it? And depending on the nature of the horse, temperament of that horse, how he's going to react to these kinds of things. If he is not a tolerant horse, not a forgiving horse, he's probably going to get angry and lash out. Um, and uh, that horse is going to end up going down the road because he's going to become dangerous. But if he is a good, willing, easy to get along with horse, he just kind of stores that resentment over time. And um, sometimes that is the cause of, of the grumpiness and the ear pinning. So get, getting some help from a trainer, a, a an instructor, or even just a knowledgeable third party that that can watch you and your horse as you ride and interact, see where the points of conflict are coming into play. That could help a lot. It's, it's very difficult when you're up on the horse's back to, to really fully see and understand the horse's reaction and response to what you do as a rider. But uh, I can tell you after multiple decades and thousands and thousands of horses and riders watching them from the middle of the arena, you can see a knowledgeable eye can see a real cause and effect there. Let's talk for a moment about the stages of learning as it applies to your horse, but keep in mind that these stages of learning actually apply to all animals, including humans. But the first stage of learning is called acquisition, and that just means you've acquired a new skill. So in the case of the training of a horse, let's say it's a horse that's just started under saddle and I'm riding him for the first time and I want to teach him the go cue. So I flutter my legs on his side and cluck and I just continue with those antics until I feel him move forward and then I release the pressure and praise him. And he hopefully in that moment made an association between my actions and his actions. And he learned that when she waves her legs, that means go. So at that moment, that's the first stage of learning where the horse has acquired a new skill. Now, that doesn't mean he's going to give a perfect response every time. It just means there's a good chance that the next time I do it, he'll give the same response. So I start riding said colt, and every time I ask him for an upward transition, I reach forward, cluck, and, and wave my legs, flutter my legs a little bit. Pretty soon... He is giving me a nice forward response every single time I ask that of him. And it has become more cue-like and less antic-like. 
And now that horse is at the second stage of learning, which is called fluency. And so at stage two, that means the horse is fluent in the skill and that every time he gets that cue, he'll give that response. The third stage of learning is called generalization. And this is a a stage that is particularly challenging with horses because generalization means that you're able to perform the skill anytime, anywhere, under any amount of pressure and in various circumstances. Generalization of a skill means that you've had so much experience that you could do it in your sleep, so to speak. And the reason why this is such a challenging level with horses is because horses are also very location-specific in what they learn. They always associate a place with something they learn, which, by the way, is why if your horse has a frightening experience, when you take him back to that place, he's going to be nervous again. So, and that's why when I start that colt, riding him in the round pen, we can you know, work a few days in there. He's riding really well in there. But when I take him back into a new location, into a larger arena or outside the round pen, things are going to be totally different. He has to learn those skills in a new place. So that's what generalization is about, is being able to adapt that which you've learned here to every circumstance. And for horses, this takes a long time This is what we call seasoning in a horse. It means he's been there, done that. He's been hauled around. He's gone to horse shows. He's gone to trail rides. He's gone to parades. He's done this. He's done that. He's done multiple disciplines. He's lived in different locations. He's been handled and ridden by different people. This is a well-seasoned, well-trained horse. And that's the stage of generalization and By the way, it's a lot easier to buy a horse with that level of training and experience than it is to put one on the horse because it literally takes years and thousands of dollars. So the final stage of learning, by the way, is called maintenance. And this is where you simply maintain your skills. You maintain your level of training and conditioning. Let's say you're a high-level open jumper, you're a horse that knows your job, you do it very well, you're successful a lot, you're competing a lot. In between um, contests or competitions, you're not actually training this horse. He doesn't need to know more. He needs to stay physically and mentally sound. He needs to stay very content. Uh, We need to rest him. We need to take the best uh, physical, emotional care of that horse in between shows, let's say you're showing him every weekend, he doesn't need training between the shows. He just needs a maintenance level of training to keep his skills fresh. I like to think about in the human equation, let's say you're a surgeon and you're the, you know, best surgeon in that uh, discipline that there is around, but you still have to go to continuing education to keep your skills sharp. You still have to stay up on your reading and, and uh, consider you know, new advances in technology and in medicine and all that. So that's the maintenance level of training. So let's just take, uh, take a minute to think about 
where the rider is in that continuum of the stages of learning as compared to where the horse is in that continuum. Hopefully, if you're a rider that's in one of the early stages, you've got a horse that's in uh, an advanced stage of training. And if you are a rider that's in the beginning stages of learning and your horse is also in the beginning stages of learning, this means there's going to be a lot of conflict. There's going to be a lot of stutters, stops and starts, mistakes being made. And obviously the horse's training will will be sacrificed as compared to a horse that was being trained by a professional or an expert. So think about the stages of learning of the horse. Think about the stages of learning of the rider and how well those two things mesh. And we can understand the emotional support that a horse might need. We can understand that horse's point of view of this job that you're asking him to do a little bit better if we're more honest and upfront about where we fit into that, that equation of how happy is your horse at being ridden. Avoiding burnout. This is a big topic and a big part of the discussion on how happy our horses are at working, at doing their job. There are very few things that we ask a horse to do under saddle in in riding sports that he would do on his own. Now, don't get me wrong. I know a lot of cow horses that would gladly go out into a field of cows and, and play around with them and torture them a little bit and try to dominate them with their athletic prowess. But they wouldn't do it day in and day out for an hour and a half every day. And they would just might do it on occasion. I remember when I was young and, and consumed with riding jumping horses. Sure, we had horses that when you would turn them out in the outdoor arena where the jumps were set up, they'd occasionally pop over a jump. But to be honest, it usually had more to do with the them running and playing and the jump having to be in their way. And they it was not an obstacle to them, so they just jump over it. But again, you would never see a horse out there riding jumps over and over and over and over and over again until he got it right. So, you know, again, not to be too anthropomorphic, but think about human society. If you come from a very wealthy family and you've, you're given anything and everything you ever wanted and living in the lap of luxury and uh, leading a happy life, would you feel the need to go out and get a job and start at the bottom and work your way up in a company? Probably not. Maybe. Maybe you would. But probably not. So let's get real about the fact that horses are working for a living and they might not always like their job. So, so the question is really, what can I do to make my horse happier? And, and one of the first things would be to consider his point of view in the training and consider that it is a job to him and treat him with respect that you would treat a colleague, a peer, a fellow worker, or maybe even your boss. Not that you want your horse to be the boss, but you 
would like for him to have that much skin in the game, wouldn't you? So you, you know, maybe it's not inappropriate to think of how, how would I treat this horse in this hard job that I'm asking him to do? You know, how do I treat him with the respect that I would treat my professional colleagues and, and even my boss? Acknowledge, you know, his efforts, acknowledge mistakes that you've made, um, try to not make those mistakes again. But invariably, when you're training hard for a, for a goal, particularly a competitive goal with a horse or even just a hard driving goal, let's say, let's say, say you're signed up for the American Heart Association annual beach ride in Myrtle Beach, and you're going to be riding on the beach for five days, culminating in a 20-mile ride on the beach in the sand on the fifth day, on the fourth day, sorry. Fifth day, you go home. Uh, So you're going to have to, even though that's a totally fun, happy endeavor and more of a social event than a competition, you're still going to have to push that hard, horse pretty hard in his training and conditioning to get him, it would be prepared because it would be totally unfair to just send him out on a ride like that without him being in the physical shape he needs to be in. So if I know I'm going to be setting off in some kind of difficult training endeavor for a horse, first thing I want to think about is how can I avoid repetition? How can I avoid sameness? How can I both um, get the training and the practice of skills accomplished that I need to do without drill, 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 repetition, repetition, repetition? I'm reminded of a horse I trained uh, a long time ago. She was a lovely quarter horse mare that was miserable in her job to the point where she had pretty much refused to enter the show ring anymore. And her, she just, she was an unwilling participant in pretty much everything. If you walked into her stall, she would sometimes charge people. She hated life. And they were at their wits' end. She had had been a at one time a very well trained. Uh, she was a very well trained horse, but at one time she had won lots of ribbons and done really well. And now she just was refusing to show. So, having had horses like that in training before, I trained a lot of uh, quote unquote problem horses in my career. Um, this, as in most cases, was not a problem horse. But, but problem humans. So first thing I always do when you get a horse, we would do routinely when we get a horse in training like that, first of all, you address their physical needs. You have them fully vetted. You, you look at resting the horse. I believe with this mare, we spent about 30 days just grooming her, turning her out, hand walking her for exercise, allowing her to graze grass, um, giving her what I call the country club treatment. In other words, what we do for those horses for at least 30 days is try to pay them back and give them the true health spa, country club, pampered 
treatment, what's going to make this horse happiest. And we don't ride the horse. We, we try to keep the horse minimally uh, exercised in a minimal way that they don't lose physical conditioning, but in a way that they aren't feeling drilled. And um, so I call that the country club treatment. We do that for 30 days, and, and hopefully that resets the horse from his or her, in this case, greatest anger and resentment. So after that, I started riding this mare. Now, the discipline that she had been trained and shown in was Western pleasure. And consequently, she had been drilled repeatedly in her arena, round and round and round and round on the rail, going slower and slower and slower and slower. And, you know, often, and in this Western discipline is, Western pleasure is not different than most disciplines. When you get so totally consumed in one discipline that you're drilling the same skills over and over and over and over again, the monotony and repetitiveness to the horse becomes intolerable at some point. And they're miserable. They're like, can't we do something new? Can't we do something different? I got this down. Can't we do, you know, just like people like to learn, horses like to learn. Just like people like a change of scenery, horses like a change of scenery. So um, with this mare, within a few days of riding her, I realized that whenever I was on the rail with her, even though I wasn't asking her to go slowly, I was asking her to move out. Um, whenever I was on the rail with her, she was unhappy, you know, ears ears tense and back and kind of in a tense, hollowed frame. Um, just sort of this attitude of, you know, go ahead, make me. But if I would start doing unexpected things with her, like leg yield right, leg yield left. Let's do a circle. How can we bend? Let's try this. Let's try that. Oh, there's some ground pulse. Oh, have you ever drug a slicker? Oh, have you ever drug a log? The more I started doing different stuff with her, the happier she became until, you know, I can't remember. It's a long time ago, but within, I'd say, a week this mare was like, what are we going to do next? I'm so happy I can, uh, let's go do anything, anything other than go round and round on the rail. So we started taking her out on trail rides. We started working cattle with her. She ultimately turned out to be an awesome cow horse. The owner actually got into some cow horse, ranch horse versatility, and she, she did great. And um, it, it was a, a very happy ending to that story. So how do we, what are the lessons learned? Avoid repetition. Consider that, consider your horse's nature and and temperament in the sport that you choose for him. In this case, Western Pleasure was not the right choice for this horse. She, She was a cow horse. She liked to move out. She liked new challenging um, things. Uh, She liked more athletic maneuvers. And uh, Western Pleasure was not her thing. So if you are on a, a singular endeavor with a horse, a, a, des- a discipline, a competition that you're, you know, that's what your heart is set on, consider adding some cross training into your program. Take that horse out on a trail ride at least once a week. 
take him and teach him ground poles and cavalettis or trail obstacles, anything that's just new and unexpected to the horse. Not in a not unexpected in a scary or pressure sort of way, but in a wow, this is different. I'm going to have to think about this. Engage his mind and engage his spirit a little bit. Um, find something that seems like it's fun to that horse and and do that every now and then. I always consider a flow to my week in a training program with any individual horse. And if let's just for simplicity, say your your work week for that horse is Monday through Friday. On Monday, I don't really expect much from my horses. I just, you know, if they've had a couple of days off, I want to kickstart them physically, you know, move them out a little bit at the trot and canter on loose range. Just, uh, just kind of move them out a little bit. Don't ask a lot of them. Just let's just go on a ride and, and let's just get our mind back in the game today. Always at the end of every ride I take with my horses, I'll ask them to do one difficult thing. And as soon as that horse shows me some effort in that difficult thing, I end on that note and put the horse away. So then on Tuesday, Tuesday I'm going to ask a little bit more of that horse. I'm going to go back and work on the the hardest skills we worked on last week. And I'm going to hopefully on Tuesday, be able to perform the, the difficult skills we did last week. Um, on Last week, we may have done it on Thursday, and this week, we're going to do it on Tuesday. So I'm going to put the turn the heat up just a little bit on Tuesday. Again, I'm also going to push the horse physically again on Tuesday. And then I'm going to give him that one hard test at the end of our ride. And as soon as he shows me some effort, I'm going to put him away on a happy note. And then Wednesday is the day I'm probably going to ask the most of my horse. I'm going to introduce something new, um, some higher level of expectation, whether that be performing an existing skill better or introducing a new skill or a new aspect of that skill. So, or a new exercise maybe on Wednesday um, Thursday, I'm going to start sort of backing off of the horse, maybe not backing off, but maintaining status quo. So I'm not going to push him as hard as I did on Wednesday. I might ask him that new skill again, or that little bit harder thing again. But if he gives it to me, I'm going to say, okay, we're getting somewhere here. So let's not get greedy. Let's not ask for too much. And then on Friday, I'm most likely to just take a trail ride on that horse, just go out. Sometimes we might just, you know, ride bareback or ride um, in a halter and um, just something that seems easier to the horse. Uh, I'm never going to press the horse very hard on Friday. I'm going to hopefully put him away on a note where he's feeling pretty good. He's feeling still um, fresh and energetic. If, if I've pushed him hard that week, I don't want him to end the week feeling exhausted and, and depleted of energy. So Friday, that ride's going to be low key. Um, that's when, you know, if I'm going to do some cross training and do something totally different with the horse, I would do it on Thursday or Friday. Um, so 
consider a rhythm in your training so that you're not drilling the same drill over and over and over again the horse. You're not doing the same thing every day with the horse. And that there is an ebb and flow to your expectation of that horse. And also always incentivize your horse to try harder by recognizing when he puts forth effort. I don't care if it's in the beginning of your ride, the middle of your ride, or the end of your ride. If your horse puts forth effort in something you've asked him to do, recognize it, praise him for it, um, celebrate it a little bit with him. And that's why I always um, wait to the end of my ride to ask my horse something difficult. And uh, pretty soon my horses understand this routine. So they start trying harder and harder at the end of our ride. And they're really happy when uh, they think they've caused me to put them away by by trying extra hard. Finally, we should talk about managing your competition goals. Chances are good if you're dealing with burnout and a horse that's unhappy in his job and it's not related to physical reasons. Chances are good there's competition involved. And first of all, competitive riders are driven um, they can be unrelenting in their training and the pressure they put on the horse. Second of all, traveling for a horse is, uh, you know, of course, stressful. And the performance is stressful. Sleeping at a new location is stressful. Being around strange horses and strange people is stressful. So, and being away from the herd and home is stressful. So, we have to be realistic in in the horse's point of view in our competitive schedule. You have to be realistic in what your horse is physically capable of. In other words, if you're going to competitions that are multiple days in length and your horse is doing difficult stuff multiple days in a row, you know, on the second or third day, that horse is hating life and you're still taking the, putting the exact amount of demand and expectation on him and he's the one you know sleeping in a strange place and feeling all that stress and everything so some horses do you know if you go to multiple day competitions and your horse performs you know well on the first day or well on the second day terrible on the third day that's really something to think about there's either physical limitation you're running into there which is very likely if it's a demanding sport like barrel racing or roping or cutting or jumping that on that third day the horse is starting to experience joint soreness back soreness something like that foot soreness so but sometimes it can just be simply the amount of pressure put on that horse so we learn as we you know develop that competitive horse is it realistic to go to three competitions a month with a horse or do I need to keep it to two? Do I need a weekend weekend off between every competition or can we go, you know, five, six weeks in a row and then have a long time off? What kind of riding schedule do I need? Do I need more riding and conditioning on that horse for him to be happier in the job? Or do I need to put less physical demands on that horse for him to be happier in the job? What can we do when we're on the road with that horse to make things better for him. And, you know, there's just, I would say, countless considerations. 
of what we can do to pay this horse back, what what how uh, under what circumstances this horse going to be in his best um, performance state, and uh, how how can I contribute to that? So you really need to you know look at your competition schedule, look at the number of classes you're entering, find what is the optimal. Um, level for that horse and I'm reminded of a horse we used to own my husband's horse really super super nice cow horse reined cow horse uh, excelled in reining excelled in the cutting in um, fence work and or the boxing and fence work and he was uh, great but the events we would take him to were often three days and sometimes they, they would like to do two days of clinic and one day of competition. And what we discovered with the horse was that in the clinics, he did great. But in the, by the time we got to the competition, his hocks were so sore that ultimately one time he refused to, to work a cow. And this was one of the cowiest horses you ever rode. And um, so hello, big, big red flag, a horse that used to excel at this and love doing it, all of a sudden is refusing to do it. So there was a very clear message there. And um, the things we learned were that the horse could work cattle two days in a row, but not three days in a row. And also that the horse needed some pharmaceutical help. He needed some joint injections, um, not steroids. We don't inject the hawks with steroids, but we um, inject biologic treatments that are heal, healing in, in nature. You rest the horse, you bring him back to health, and then you go about that sport again. So um, my good horse, Dooley, he awesome reined cow horse, same thing for him. He you know, he would he would get back sore, and on the third day, he was too back sore to work a cow. So, you know, I found with him, sometimes he was best on the second day. So the first day, he was a little fresh and hot, hot on you know, hot under the collar. Second day, he was serious and workmanlike and did a great job. Third day, too much for him, and he was he was going to deteriorate a lot in his performance because he just physically um, wasn't wasn't able to handle third day and so we have to manage a horse not according to only the needs of the rider but to his own physical and emotional well-being and the needs of the horse as well And now it's time for my favorite segment, What the Hey Q&A. We pick a few unique questions from our listeners each month and answer them on the air. Recently, I was at a horse expo in Massachusetts and somebody gave me a white oval sticker with three black letters on it for my car. And the three black letters are Hey, H-A-Y. And it was one of our loyal uh, podcast listeners, and she uh, was commenting on how much I like saying what the hey, Q&A. And uh, so now I've got that hay sticker on my car. So thank you. Thank you very much. We're also looking for listeners to come on the air with me for a live Q&A session over the phone. So if you have a more complicated question about your horse and you'd like to discuss it with me on the air, 
Or if you'd like to submit a written question for What the Hay, please go to my Facebook page at Julie Goodnight Horsemanship or go to juliegoodnight.com slash podcast and contact us there. And now, our first question. Megan, read the first question, please. Our first question comes from Susan, and she says, This question's more for the rider than for the horse. What are some exercises to use more leg and less hands? Wow, great question, Susan. And I agree that this subject of, uh, I like to say, more body, less hands. This is definitely a subject for the rider, but it is about the horse because uh, we are so reliant on the reins for our main form of communication with the horse, and that is not good for the horse. He's very difficult time performing his job when we're constantly interfering with the reins, and he's quite capable of responding to cues that come from your entire body. So we talk a lot about the natural aids, the primary natural aids being your seat, legs, and hands. Uh, of course, we also have our voice to cue the horse, and it's important to use your voice properly. But we tend to focus a lot when we're, we're trying to get less reliant on the reins. Uh, we focus a lot on the seat and legs as you should. But there's also other things you want to think about. You want to think about using your entire body in a cue, uh, including where you look, where you turn your shoulders, where your weight shifts properly, uh, including your center of changes in your center of gravity, uh, changes in the rhythm with which you ride. All of these things are signals to the horse. Uh, All of them can become cues to the horse. And he's such a sensitive and responsive animal that, you know, for instance, it's not hard to train a horse to respond just from a glance or a signal from, you know, a a small gesture from your hand or something like that from the ground when he can see you. Um, From the saddle, a great deal of your body is connected to him so he can feel you, um, changes in your, uh, where you're looking or your focus or your rigidity uh, or your rhythm. All of those things are very easy to detect. So it's, um, you're a woman after my own heart in trying to learn to cue Uh, more with your body and less with your hands. And I do have a lot of exercises that apply to that. And I do have a lot of resources available, by the way, in video format. Often a a visual guide is a little bit easier when you're dealing with complicated concepts in riding and cueing. Um, So volume two in particular in my riding series, video series, is called communication and control and it is specifically about using your entire body together as a unit so that your seat legs and hands are all uh, moving in a complementary fashion and that they that your entire body all together as one unit is sending a consistent signal to the horse to speed up or slow down or turn or change directions. And 
So I would encourage you to take a look at that. That is available as a streaming product from my website, juliegoodnight.com. And also, um, there's lots of, of additional information, articles and whatnot on my website as well about cueing more with your body. But when you, I think the most important thing you can start thinking about as a rider in, in order to be more reliant on your other aids and less reliant on your hands is you have to change some unconscious, unconscious um, habits in your riding. Almost all riders, the very first action they take when they think about stopping is to pull on the reins. And for most riders, the very first action that they take when they think about turning is a pull on the reins. These are habits that are ingrained in your riding without any conscious thought whatsoever. And the longer you've been riding, the more ingrained they are. And when you have habits that are subconscious, in other words, you're not even aware that you're doing them, you do it without conscious thought. It's very difficult to break those habits because you, you're not thinking about it. So you have to mentally make a commitment to remind yourself each and every time before you turn and each and every time before you stop to remind yourself that you indeed have this habit of pulling on the reins first and that it is your goal to conquer them. And so think about it first. Also, I want to develop a sequenced and methodical cue for every um, transition or cue that I give my horse. So I, I want a sequence of aids to cue the horse from walk to trot, a sequence of, of the aids to cue from walk to canter or trot to canter to stop and to turn. And the, um, you, we always use our aids in a sequence, or we try to, to develop cues that involve a sequence of aids because horses learn sequences really fast. And when sequences are used with reliability, and, and by the way, the timing of the sequence depends on the horse's level of training. If he's a young horse, uh, just learning a cue. Uh, remember earlier we talked about fluency in a skill. If he's a young horse just learning the sequence of that cue, let's say to canter, let's say the sequence of my cue after I've prepared him that a cue is coming, I, I use outside leg, a lift of the inside rein, and then a kiss and push with my seat. If that's my sequence and the young green horse, I might pause a second or two between each aid but in that finished horse it's almost imperceptible the amount of time so it would just go to leg run seat almost simultaneously not quite but almost so as the horse becomes more fluent in the skill the timing of the sequence gets smaller and smaller and as the horse becomes more fluent in the skill he begins to respond to the first part of the sequence, or he's even responding to something before that, like the preparation for the cue. So um, these are things to watch out for and think about. 
But most importantly, you need to sort of redevelop. There's lots of exercises you can do. Uh, my website's just covered over with them to help develop your seat and legs and the other aids, body aids that you have to, to communicate with the horse. But most importantly, you have to break these subconscious habits of using the reins first. Also, you need to understand that your reins are not a cueing device. They are a reinforcement device. In other words, the cue to stop, the cue to turn, and the cue to back should not come from your reins. We use our other aids for cues, where you look, where you turn your shoulders and arms, how you shift your weight forward or back or side to side, your leg position, how you um, pressure your legs or move your legs. All of these things are cues. The reins come into play to reinforce the cue that you gave when the horse does not respond. So if I want my horse to turn, I start by turning and looking, opening my shoulders and arms into the turn because my shoulders and arms define what I expect the horse's shoulders to do. And I, uh, you know, twist in my torso appropriately so that the cue um, emanates throughout my body. And if none of that causes a turn in the horse, then I go to the reins for reinforcement. So you you can teach any cue to the horse by reinforcing with the reins. So I could teach my horse to stop on solely a voice cue by simply issuing the voice cue, whoa, giving it about a half a second or a second before I reinforce with the reins and stop the horse manually with the reins. And in short order, if I am consistent in my cueing and consistent in that sequence and reinforcement, cue followed by reinforcement, the horse stops on the cue and no reinforcement is needed. And from that day forward, I no longer need the reins to stop. So it's more important, I think, for you to get some higher level concepts into your riding to start using your reins as reinforcement, not as the cue to eliminate the subconscious habits of going to the reins first in downward transitions and turning and also to to develop a more systematic and consistent way of cueing your horse so that he can rely on the signals he gets from your body. There's lots of exercises on my website. I have a whole video, volume three in my um, riding series, series dedicated to exercises to improve your riding, many of which have to do with riding without the reins or or not being reliant on the reins for cueing. So check out those resources, but in the meantime, work on your awareness and understanding and eliminating those bad habits in your riding. Megan, next question, please. This question comes from Stephanie, and she says, I would love a refresher on your seat bones and how they should be in relation to a balanced seat. There was an exercise where we sat on our hands to feel our seat bones. It was so helpful. Thank you, Stephanie. That's a great question. And uh, it's clear to me that you have been in a clinic of mine because I love to do this in clinics off the horse, outside of the arena, and sitting in a chair. I think there are actually many different concepts that we can learn and gain a gr greater understanding of from the ground. In fact, I'm so sure of that. Uh, I have a lot of videos and audios 
just to that effect. And volume three in my writing series, Goodnight Principles of Writing, volume three is called uh, Perfect Practice Exercises to Improve Your Writing. And this exercise that you're asking about and many others, including uh, how to become less reliant on the reins and cue your horse better with your seat and legs, um, those exercises like that, it's not, it's not about physical conditioning exercises. It's about having a greater understanding and awareness in your writing. So I, am, I encourage you to check that out as a resource. Um, also, it comes with an arena pocket guide. And I'm uh, sorry, it doesn't come with it. But in addition to that, uh, I also offer an arena pocket guide, which is a companion booklet to the video perfect practice and it's a just a handy uh flip book that has a photographic guide and a brief description of each exercise so that you can actually take it to the arena with you and you can have a reminder of how the exercise goes uh, while you're out there in the arena or or conducting your exercises such as this one i'm about to share with you off the horse so I, a very big part of my teaching of riding is to make people understand that we cue first and foremost from our seat aid. Your seat is actually two aids in one because often we refer to it as the weight aid. And so I like to think of the weight aid as being my center of gravity and shifts in my center of gravity either forward or back or from side to side are very clearly felt by the horse since I'm balanced directly over, uh, directly above and slightly behind his center of gravity, just like if you're carrying somebody piggyback, how you center them over your center of gravity. Well, when you're in a proper balance position with the horse, you, you are just in that spot. You're, you're balanced just above and behind his center of gravity. So he feels any changes in your center of gravity quite well and quite clearly. So we always want to incorporate that into our cueing. Also, we have the pressure of our two seat bones and the actual physical pressure of our seat bones pressing into the back of the horse or lifting from the back of the horse or um, moving from side to side. Um, In other words, from your left seat bone to your right seat bone to your left seat bone. So we can articulate our seat bones right to left and, and also um, in, a, in a longitudinal way, um, pressing our seat bones down into the back of the horse or, or lightening them. So this exercise that I think is a great reminder, and thank you for asking about, Stephanie, uh, you need to be sitting in a chair and um, not driving your car. So if you're listening while you're dr- to this podcast while you're driving the car, you're going to have to wait until you get home. But you want to be sitting in a chair with your feet flat on the ground and your feet balanced flat on the fo- floor and underneath you, as well underneath you as you can get sitting in a chair. And first and foremost, we want to find that balanced position. So you want to sit back and um, sort of tuck your belly button in and even think of slightly rounding your lower back so that your weight comes more onto the back of your seat bones. And then slowly lift your sternum and lengthen your spine so that each 
vertebrae is stacked one on top of the other all the way up to your shoulders and to your neck and to the very top of your head so that the back of your neck is long. Shoulders are long and relaxed. And just take a minute to get very centered in your spine, centered on your two seat bones uh, with your belly button tucked in and your um, lower back is long and relaxed. And uh, the first thing we're going to do is uh, think about how your center of gravity and the pressure on your seat bone shifts simply with your breathing. So I'd like you to take both your hands and place them under your seat bones, palm up. So you're sort of cupping each of your seat bones in your the palm of your hand. So uh, sitting on you know, a relatively hard surface, you can feel your seat bones in your hands. Sit nice and tall and long. And I want you to take a deep breath in, slowly, two, three, four, lengthening. And now as you exhale on a four or five count, slowly exhale every drop of air, rounding your shoulders down towards your hip, rounding your back, sucking your belly button in, expending every last little bit of air. And then one more time, inhale as you lengthen, two, three, four, five and exhale as you compress your shoulders down towards your spine, rounding your lower back, sucking your belly button in, getting as short and small as you can. And now just come back to a neutral position and take your hands out um, from under your seat. And let me tell you what you should have been feeling. As you inhale and lengthen, you go all the way up to the top of your seat bones. You kind of get a little bit to the front of and very much the top of your seat bones. And then as you exhale and compress and round your back, those seat bones press down and forward into your hands. And if you really maximize the lengthening and the shortening of your spine, you could probably get about six inches of movement in your seat bones. And so that is just to illustrate how much your seat bones uh, translate feel to the horse of what you're doing in your torso. Now, we're not going to stop that horse by completely rounding our back and going into the fetal position, uh, but we are going to utilize that rotation in our pelvis, that rounding and of the lower back and opening of the pelvis in order to cue that horse to uh, collect sometimes when we're driving the horse into a collected frame um, or uh, sorry to to encourage that horse to stop or slow down and when we cue that horse to go more forward or we cue that horse for an upward transition and we inhale and we lift up to the top of our seat bones that is also a very clear signal to the horse um, to move um, secondly as you inhale and exhale it causes a shift in the center of gravity. So let's one more time go back to sitting on your hands. So your feet are flat on the floor. You're sitting on your hands, palm up, one seat bone in each hand, but you're sitting nice and tall, shoulders long and relaxed, shoulders flat on your back, spine vertebrae stacked one on top of the other, belly button sucked in, your neck is long. 
um, and you're lengthening from the top of your head. And so now as you inhale and exhale, so, so just give me a couple of rotations of inhaling and exhaling on a long four or five count, lengthening as you inhale and compressing down, rounding your back, uh, compressing your shoulders towards your hips as you exhale every last bit of air. And I want you to notice that your center of gravity as you come up and you inhale and you lengthen how your center of gravity comes forward and as you exhale and round and compress and your seat bones rotate down into the uh, chair uh, your center of gravity is moving back and so uh, take your hands out and relax for a minute so the idea here is that um, not only are we sending a, a clear signal for the horse to stop or go with the pressure from our seat bones or the or release of pressure, or the lifting of pressure. Um, but we're also changing our center of gravity forward and back, which sends a very clear message to the horse when you ride in balance with him, whether you want him to speed up or slow down. So one more little quick exercise I can show you about sitting on your hands and discovering the power of your seat bones. Let's go back to sitting on your hands, um, one seat bone in each hand, palm up, feet flat on the floor, sitting nice and tall, centered, belly button sucked in, shoulders long and relaxed, lengthened in your spine. Now I want you to stay very centered uh, with your chest very centered, so we're going to... Uh, Think about how your seat bones work in, in the cue to turn your horse. But here's the way I want you to do it. I want you to um, sit up nice and tall and look straight ahead. And keeping your spine very centered, in other words, not leaning in either direction, I want you to first look up and then twist your eyes and your head all the way back behind you in one direction or the other, doesn't matter, but twist and look as far behind you as you can while keeping um, yourself um, not leaning into the turn. And now rotate back to center. Take an inhale and lengthen. And as you exhale, staying very centered, turn around and twist the other direction as far as you can, looking back behind you as far as you can. And now come back to center. So what you should have been feeling there, as long as you weren't leaning in the direction of the turn, what you should feel is that it, as you twisted to the right, your left seat bone got very heavy and your right seat bone got very light. As you came back to center, you came to equal weight on both seat bones. And then as you twisted in the other direction, you feel your outside seat bone lengthen and your inside seat bone shorten and lighten. That's the sort of physiological response that your body has to twisting in the turn, but it's also the exact same physical response that your horse's body does in, in the, the twisting or bending, if, if you will, of the turn. And so um, also it sets your legs up to, give, to use them correctly in the turn. So as you feel your outside seat bone lengthen, when you're sitting on the horse, your outside leg will also lengthen. It'll fall back and stretch around the barrel of the horse. And as you feel your inside um, seat bone lighten and your inside um, and your your inside uh, ribs sort of shorten, 
Um, that also will position your inside leg slightly forward, bringing the pressure towards the girth of the horse. Um, that's why the inside leg is the bending leg. So our outside leg is directional. Our inside leg is the passive bending leg aid. Um, it's also the leg that gives you impulsion. And so if we learn to use our body properly in the turn, uh, the biggest mistake people make in cueing the horse to turn is leaning into the turn. And interestingly, when you stay very centered on the horse and you use your body appropriately, you will notice that your weight shifts to your outside seat bone and your outside leg in the turn. So that's a great exercise to play with when you're off the horse and then try to carry these principles over to when you're riding when it comes to cueing the horse for upward and downward transitions and also for turning. Again, these exercises are all over my website. Um, I've got a specific video and arena pocket guide that uh, have all of these exercises in it. Um, the video is called, uh, it's volume three in my writing series. It's called Perfect Practice. The booklet's called Perfect Practice as well. So I, um, I love teaching exercises and I love doing them myself to, and practicing when I'm riding to uh, improve my own skills. So thanks for asking. We've got some great questions uh, this, this month in the What the Hey Q&A. So thanks for asking and thanks for listening. Thank you, everyone, for a fun and interesting conversation about keeping your horses happy in their training and supporting their emotional well-being as well as their physical well-being. Next month, we'll tackle another horse training subject to help you find the solutions you need to help make your horse life better. I enjoy sharing my horse care and training experience with you, but I'd love to hear what topics interest you the most. If you have questions for our Q&A segment, ideas for topics you'd like me to address, or you'd like to participate in a call-in podcast with me, please message me on Facebook at Julie Goodnight or email me at podcast at juliegoodnight.com. Be sure to hit subscribe and you won't miss a single episode. Also, it helps us rise in the rankings so more horse lovers like you can find this podcast. I'm Julie Goodnight. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to enjoy the ride. Be sure to visit juliegoodnight.com academy for more in-depth training advice. If you enjoyed this podcast, I'd really appreciate your good review on iTunes so more horse lovers just like you can find my podcast. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to enjoy the ride. Mm-hmm.